welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you have come along. Look, many people who are in my audience love C.S. Lewis. And if you love C.S. Lewis, you're going to love this episode. But we're coming at this from a different perspective. And that perspective perspective is of reception history. And so I, you might not even know what I mean when I say that, but I'm excited for you to, to hear about it. So just hang on here and I'll introduce my guest in just a second. But first, I want you to know that this podcast comes to you from Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And at this particular moment within the broad pan-Wesleyan movement, our seminary has grown by leaps and bounds, particularly with the emergence of the Global Methodist Church, where we've just added, uh, even just coming in this spring semester, we have more than 250 Global Methodist church pastors, um, and our largest enrollment in our history. So we're excited to be able to serve the church in this moment. And there's many programs from bachelor's to master's to doctoral programs. If you're interested, we'd love for you to check that out. Check us out at wbs.edu. I'm also thankful to WPO Development, who helps make this podcast happen. They are a group of people who come alongside churches, nonprofits, um, institutions to be able to help them think about the future and plan for capital campaigns and like. I've worked with them and they've been a blessing to me. So I encourage you to check them out at WPO Development. Um, you can find a link to them in my show notes. Also, several things come to you from this website and the things that we have here at andymillerthird.com. Um, if you're not on my mailing list, I would love for you to get on that where you would receive fresh content from me regularly, including a free gift that I'll give to folks if you sign up for my email list where you will get a tool. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's a video course. It's a, a little guide that you can use to walk through your own sermon preparation, not just that, or even if it's preparing a Sunday school lesson. So I'd love for you to check that out. I have courses that are available online for small groups and the like, so you can find out about that at andymillerthethird.com. All right. I am so honored as somebody who's working in history right now to have one of the preeminent historians of our time within the Christian world, particularly, but just in the scholarly world in general, Dr. Mark Knoll, who's the Emeritus Professor of History at Wheaton College and the University of Notre Dame on the podcast. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a real delight to be with you today. I, uh, I've followed you for a while. My first introduction to you came with your uh, famous book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which some of my friends in the holiness tradition might not always love how you pushed us a little bit there. But nevertheless, we're so thankful for your scholarship and the way you've served not just the church, but you've served the intellectual community with helping us understand who we are. Yes, that, that's been a, a, a longstanding desire to, to look at Christian movements and to take the Christianity very seriously, but also to try to position them in their times and places. And then by doing that positioning, to understand more about the Christianity, but then more also about how uh, surrounding forces, factors, influences have shaped the development of, of Christian traditions in different places around the world, especially in the, for myself, the U.S., Canada, to a little bit the U.K., Yes. And, and before we get into your book, which I know people will be anxious for us to talk about, I'm holding it up here, C.S. Lewis in America, Readings and Reception, 
1935 to 1947. We'll get into that. But I want to uh, my audience to hear a little bit about you and your vocation as a scholar and historian. And I think that will help us understand your approach to this book, because there's been a lot written on C.S. Lewis. And some people say, well, why do we need another book? But you come at it as a historian, particularly a historian who's focused on American theology and American Christianity um, that I think is incredibly Tell us a little calling as a scholar and as a historian. Yes, and I'm glad you used the word calling because that certainly is my sense that uh, in the Christian church, the body of Christ has many different uh, functions, many different features. A few of us, I think, need uh, should be uh, called to be scholars and in, in uh, cooperation with the rest of the church, learning from the rest of the church, even as the rest of the church hopefully can learn from us. In my case, uh, I have felt called to look at the history of Christianity in primarily North America to see what uh, it, uh, positive things that Christian churches and Christian individuals have done, but also the way in which the, the surrounding culture, the situation in um, uh, North America has influenced and affected the way in which Christian teaching has been presented, the way in which Christian life has, has gone, gone forward. My main areas of, of study have been in the 18th and 19th century. I, re I recently finished a, a really a, a 30 or 40 year long project in studying the Bible in uh, 18th and 19th century America, where one of the uh, chief uh, intentions, and this will be relevant where uh, you all teach, was just to understand why the Methodists in the era of Francis Asbury were such a dynamic force and such a successful force yes. from the 1780s to 1790s to, to the past the Civil War. And what, what was necessary to understand the Methodists was what obviously people like Francis Asbury and Freeborn Garrison and their life were doing, but then also the situation and the culture that made a Yes, put it, a dynamic, evangelical, Bible-centered, but for many years, determinedly non-political message resonates so powerfully. Well, in order to answer that question, you have to do some comparison. Other Protestant churches were, uh, some other Protestant churches were almost as energetic, almost as Bible-centered, but tended to be more directly political. Interesting. Some, some uh, uh, deeply uh, committed to the more traditional American uh, political party, some more uh, uh, strongly attached to the rising democratic tide. And this was, I think, quite, quite normal. But what it seemed clear to me after actually many years of, of looking at this was that the Methodist success had to do with their ability to stay clear from what were uh, encumbrances. Now, uh, the, the rest of that story, however, is not so favorable to Methodists because by the, by the time we get to the 1840s and 50s, the questions of the culture just could not be avoided right. when it came time for Methodists to, to uh, confront particularly the, the, the really, really serious problem of American slavery. The Methodists were pretty much like the rest of the uh, believers mm -hmm. in, in the United States. But try, trying to write a story or see a story or, or uh, figure out the history where Christian teaching and Christian actions were central, but to do it by a, a, a study of context, 
intentions, what people thought they were trying to do at the time, turned out to be, at least for my own purposes, and I think for a small set of, of, of others, just, just fascinating. Now, trying to translate that historical work into something that's, that's uh, useful and practical to Christian churches today is, is, is tricky, because if, if, you do, if you go to the library a lot, you're going to accumulate a lot of details, and uh, most people don't have time to do a, a lot of uh, detailed historical work. But for, for, for uh, the academic contribution to the church, and then the church's contribution to those who are in academia, there is a, uh, a synergistic relationship that at its best is helpful. Mm. So when I was working at, at for example, on, on the Methodist, I, I could uh, focus on how their uh, message was comforting to some and threatening to others, which is actually a, a well-documented in the historical record. But if I was also able to keep in mind that the reason for the threatening and the comforting had to do both with the Methodist message and with how the Methodist message was presented, then I was able to see a fuller sense of how the Christian gospel is working in that time and place for good, but then also for some problems. This is rambling on and on. But, but oh, let me jump in. I'm so, this, this is right up my alley, and I think it's so helpful with uh, even in my introduction, I mentioned that the, the Global Methodist Church is a part of what's happening in the life of, of, of the seminary I serve. And I, I think that all of these questions are incredibly related to that period. Now, I'm in a tradition, and I have I know that you have friends like Ed McKinley and uh, Skip Elliott, who um, taught at Asbury University. You're aware of that world uh, and its modern type of um, the, the way it's, it's exemplified now. But I think this kind of Wesleyan holiness world is incredibly connected to the Francis Asbury tradition. And so for me, I go down for me, not just from my reading, going back to 1784, when John Wesley ordains Thomas Coke, and then, you know, by eventually then Francis Asbury ordained, we have the Christmas conference right, of right. Methodist Church. What's happening in this period is, is a shift and as much as I love Wesley, I have a I have his bust behind me. Um, there was this like I I, I he was the, his commitment to the Church of England um, and John and Francis Asbury's move toward embracing the American spirit and in part the the revolution. I think this then creates a, almost a different trajectory. And I like to think what's happened. Now, this is this is skipping a couple hundred years, so forgive me. Uh, what's happening in Methodism now is the kind of the heirs of Francis Asbury finding an avenue for service. I'm curious if uh, finding it like a denominational avenue. Well, I, I mean, I, I do think um, people who really get into history should be cautious about saying the past illuminates a way to the future. But by the same token, they should not be nervous about saying, well, there's certain things about the past that repay serious attention and that mm -hmm. might offer insight. So I, you mentioned the, uh, the the Christmas conference in 1784, and it's always struck me it's just really shrewd on Asbury's part. He's appointed by John Wesley, but he waits to take an authoritative <laughs> position until in a more American mode, he is democratically elected yes. as bishop, and you think, well, what, what's going on there? Is it just a uh, 
just a happenstance? Well, maybe, but but it shows that Asbury was sensitive to the conditions in which he was going to be doing Christian work. And I think to, to bring matters as to the present, I've been struck in, in, in trying to pay attention to uh, debates amongst Wesleyan holiness people, how important worldwide Methodism has become in debating contentious issues yes. in the Ameri among American Methodists. And in some sense, you have uh, a, a, something like the Wesley, the Wesley heritage being passed down to Asbury in America. And now you could say the Asbury, Nathan Bangs yes. tradition being adjusted in a world that's very different in 20, uh, 20, where we are, 2024, in, in <laughs> yeah. Latin America, Asia, than the United States was in, in 1784. So, so the, the adjustment that Asbury made certainly authorizes Methodists to think about adjusting yes. to now world circumstances uh, instead of simply what was inherited. Because if Asbury had not, uh, well, it, counterfactuals are difficult, but conceivably yeah. if Asbury had said, well, I'm going to remain so strictly an arm of John Wesley, probably the, the, the tremendous Methodist impact in the first 30 or 40 years of U.S. history may, may not have taken place or may not have taken place so, so fruitfully as they really did. Yeah, and, and when you think about the, the non-political nature, what, what, John Wesley was pretty critical of this very right. political move that was right. happening in the United right. States. So it was one of the chief complaints, like our, it, you have this British movement. And uh, by the right. way, we're not very fond of the British at this moment. Uh, so so I think like there, there was a maybe in part that a, a reason there. This is this is really interesting. I think uh, I'm a part of a tree. I grew up in the Salvation Army. That right. was my I was I was six generations in the Salvation Army. And I, I think in part this willingness to diverge um, politically or in our polity is in part what leads to all of these uh, various denominations, even though the, the term might not have been used. Um, so it, it's taking a heritage and then and adapting it for a new time. And I like I like how you said that Francis Asbury was one of the ones who's a model of that. Well, I think that's the Salvation Army too, because you, you get uh, in, in the the urban London work in uh, England in the 1870s and 80s something that's obviously connected to early Wesleyan holiness uh, roots, but also venturing out and, and, uh, and uh, uh, new ways of, of social uh, action. The, the Booth family is not afraid to let the women speak up in public and, and, and have, a, have a, 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 a really important say. So there's, again, a, a kind of combination between holding on to what's important from the past, but then also being alert to, to the... Uh, to the present day. I think what, what historians are able to do looking back is, is certainly not to uh, solve contemporary problems, right, but just right. to show some of the factors and some of the patience that's needed to work through the complexities of actual real historical situations. And that kind of patience, not going to solve contemporary problems, but at least going to let them be discussed openly and, and critically and with some real light instead of just heat. And we, of course, yeah. as everyone know, we, we're living in an age of great heat. 
and yes, that, yeah. that real, really strong light. That's helpful. Uh, thank you. I'm really glad. I, I think we could go on this road, this road for a long time, and I'm going to maybe pivot. We'll probably come back. I, I actually hope we do. But I'm, I'm curious, your, where your own, with some of the details of your own biography, where did you do your graduate work? What did you do your dissertation on before you landed at Wheaton and before you came more well-known with at least in um, academic circles? I was a literature major as an undergraduate at Wheaton College and did a master's degree in comparative literature before uh, coming to the a personal and academic conclusion that I needed to understand more the history of the, the Christian church. I've been greatly helped uh, in my own uh, personal life by uh, the, the, the finding out about the Protestant Reformation and especially the life of uh, Martin Luther. And it seemed like historical study was a, was a good thing to do. So I did a master's degree in, in church history at uh, Trinity Seminary in Deerfield, okay. Illinois, and then a PhD in uh, the history of Christianity in America at Vanderbilt, studying 18th century New England theology and church life. So, uh, um, And then was fortunate to, to find a position teaching history at Trinity College in Deerfield for a few years, and then at Wheaton for, for many, many years. Uh, working almost all the time on the relationship between Christian thinking, Christian institution, Christian actors, and the surrounding uh, uh, national national culture. So I uh, worked for many years on a, a book on how the uh, small r Republican uh, thinking of the American Revolution redirected in, in some ways the main theological traditions in in uh, American history, and then as as I mentioned for for even more years on how life as Christian communities in America influenced how the Bible was put to use and, and what people said about the Bible and, and and how reliance on the Bible proved to be both a tremendous source of strength, energy, direction, and when it came to issues like would the Bible permit slavery, a real problem. So. Uh, I do think that, that historical work helps slow people down in rushing to judgment just because any serious attention to most serious problems reveals many layers, many different uh, uh, factors that all need to be at least recognized to some extent to understand, in this case, how the Christian faith is helpful, how, how uh, those who call themselves Christians don't contribute to uh, public well-being, but but uh, I, I must say, uh, uh, for someone like myself who likes to go to the library and likes to read, it's 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 been a real privilege to have a vocation like this. Yes, um, when sometimes when I'm asked to describe myself, I'm, I'm I'm notably like a kind of a very public extroverted person, and like nobody would doubt that I'm an extrovert, but I like to say. I'm an extrovert who likes the library. I, yes. I still like the library. And there's just so much to gain from our, our time in figuring out what people have said in the past and, right. and illuminating our own thoughts. And I, I appreciate your work too on the um, Civil War and understanding the theology that undergirded much of what was going on there. And so that's so helpful to me too. So many of the denominations within the holiness tradition emerge in that exact period and, and, and caused by that theological crisis. Um, so I, I'm curious, as, as we make through move to this place, I'll look at your book now. Um, this helps us see, you're, you weren't 
necessarily a C.S. Lewis scholar. This hasn't right, been right. your vocation. Like there, there are people who have done that sort of work and even, even other reception histories of right. C.S. Lewis. But your particular skill and gifting and reading and time in the library over the past couple of decades has positioned you to give a new slant on C.S. Lewis's impact. So tell us a little bit of what led to this new book. Yes, uh, during the decades I taught at uh, Wheaton College, I was uh, enjoyed um, pretty close connection to the people in charge of, of Wheaton College's Wade Center, which is a center designed to collect the works by and about C.S. Lewis and then six people influential in his lives, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, uh, Owen Barfield, G.K. Chesterton, George MacDonald, uh, Dorothy L. Sayers. Yes. Um, and so while never being a Lewis scholar, I, I certainly, like many other people, enjoyed reading a lot of Lewis's work. And, and actually, as a historian, found particularly helpful a book that not too many people read, which is his Oxford History of the English Literature of the 16th Century, Excluding Drama, which, which shows Lewis to be a really careful reader as a literary scholar, but also able to position literary works in their historical context. Well, anyways. Um, after I moved to uh, Notre Dame, the, the the current director of the Wade Center, Chris Mitchell, wanted to do a program in 2013 to memorialize the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death, which uh, people know took place the same day as the, the tragic assassination of, of John, John Kennedy. And I, 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 I as, as someone just hanging around the, the Wade Center at Wheaton for years, I was impressed with people who knew a lot about C.S. Lewis, but I also was nervous that, that, that sometimes C.S. Lewis adoration yes. got in the way of C.S. Lewis explication. So what right. did it mean for, for C.S. Lewis's books to be read and, and to be uh, popular? So uh, Chris said, well, would you think of doing a paper for uh, this observance of, of the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death as it happened at the time? My wife, Maggie, was employed by Notre Dame to work several hours a week as my research assistant. Oh, okay. Always, what a I'd nice always, job. It was terrific. Yes. She, she, her only problem was that her boss occasionally wasn't too clear. <laughs> what, what did do? But here, yeah. here was, no, those, those performance evaluations, that would have been pretty tough. Well, I could always say she did a great job with whatever the boss said to do, but the boss sometimes had trouble telling her what to do. <laughs> she she is a trained librarian and actually worked oh. at Wheaton College Library for, for many years. And so um, I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to see who was reading Lewis early on in America? Because I knew that he'd been an he had an academic reputation, but was not known in the public until later. I, I was thinking the Narnia Tales and sure. uh, uh, Mere Christianity. But it was also obvious that, that the screw tape letters had made a big splash in, in the English speaking world in general. So but knowing just a little bit, I thought, well, it'd be quite interesting to, to go further and just to see, uh, to, to use the resources of the Hesburgh Library at Notre Dame. And, and when she did the research, it was just beginning to uh, have opportunities to go online to, to find out things. So a combination of going to the stacks looking at periodicals, doing a little bit of online research, turned out that, that there was a really interesting story in the reception of C.S. Lewis before he became hyper-famous 
with the beginning of, of, of I think the Narnia Tales begin in 1950 and Mere Christianity is published in 1952. I knew that, that there was related to earlier smaller works, but not too much. And, and she did a, a tremendous amount of work. She actually was looking at reviews and, and uh, reactions into the early 1950s, but there just there just was too many. Yeah. And a very convenient uh, stopping point was September 1947, when Time Magazine, which at that time had a an impact in the United States, I believe, unlike any single medium does today. Uh, time was uh, just uh, Henry Henry Luce's vehicle for telling Americans about the world, and for for since its origin, it had featured prominent individuals on its cover. And Lewis appears on his cover of Time magazine in, in September 1947. So, so this was a good, good stopping point. And again, the, the question could be raised, well, what did Americans think of C.S. Lewis before he became so famous with uh, Narnia and, and uh, the mere, mere Christianity? So we, we just went back and, and uh, Maggie's uh, work discovered that there was a uh, the first review of a C.S. Lewis book appeared in uh, the New York Times in December of 1935 of his 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 uh, work Pilgrim Regress, the, the kind of redoing of the the Bunyan uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and then uh, it was interesting in the late 1930s and early 1940s there were a handful, not a lot, but a, a significant trickle, a little bit more than a trickle of serious engagement with C.S. Lewis, the scholar of Renaissance and late medieval Hi. work. Then a, a tremendous transformation took place in early February 1943, when the Screwtape Letters, which had been published a year before in England, came out in America. And then the publisher, Macmillan, the American publisher of the Screwtape Letters, noticed that there was this tremendous interest in that book. And it rushed into print quite a few of what Lewis had written in a more popular way in, 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 into print. And then as soon as Lewis kept writing, Macmillan brought those works in, into uh, the American audience. So Lewis had, uh, there were 17 works that Lewis had published before 19, at, at, through 1947. So those were the works we looked at. How, how were they received? The academic works were not published in America, but were available in America because most of them came from the Oxford University Press, which had a New York office and made uh, the, the academic books available to, to uh, scholars. So it, it just turned out to be great fun to do that. I did the paper for Chris Mitchell in 2013. We had way, way more stuff. I'm sure. Than, than we, we could put to use. And then the Wade Center... Uh, has had for seven or eight or nine years an annual lecture series where somebody connected to Wheaton College is asked to give lectures on some aspect of some of the one of the authors in in the Wade Center, with the design, the desire, the aim of getting the Wheaton College community interested in what this is, because as we know, time moves on, and there there are there are freshmen and people forget. Of course, yeah. yeah, who's this new yeah. guy that people get talking? <laughs> right. Owen Barfield, never, never, never heard of him. So uh, the series is designed to have lectures and then three 
Wheaton College faculty are, are connected, uh, provide responses, and then uh, the lectures have been uh, published by InterVarsity Press. So we had this material, that the, uh, the current leaders of the Wade Center, uh, Crystal and David Downing, with the, with the help of the associate director, Marjorie Reed, said, well, why don't, why don't, would you like to do one of these lecture series? I said, well, I've got all this stuff that Maggie has done. I've, I've been adding little, little, how would a lecture series on Lewis's reception in this period work? And they said, well, fine, go for it. So so they did. And uh, I must pause to, to say that they, they did a terrific job because the lectures were actually given during COVID time. Okay. They had to shift the venue to a big room where people didn't have to sit next to each other and work on uh, 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 some, some ways of projecting them to people who might be interested but could, couldn't attend. And they did a terrific job. And then they, they continued, particularly Marjorie Mead, in, in helping out to bring the lectures, revised somewhat, expanded a little bit in, into, into print. This is great. I mean, the Wade Center, uh, I've had many people on the podcast who've done work there on um, Sayers and various other people, of course, with Lewis as well. I know there's in the evangelical world, you have other institutions like Westmont and and others that have C.S. Lewis centers and people are probably like competitive about who has the real uh, (laughs) the the real wardrobe nevertheless like and even how this intersects with evangelical culture today is interesting as you said like freshmen coming in at wheaton or any christian institution might may not even know uh, for instance but they make sure that you know quickly one of my stories is that my freshman year at asbury for three different classes i had to read mere christianity (laughs) for philosophy for literature and for uh, music appreciation so like it just kind of shows the prominence of this, but this is interesting. Um, your book doesn't deal with those big books, uh, Mere Christianity or Chronicles of Narnia, things he's most famous for. And it's so helpful too, because many times I ha- I've known, okay, well, this is a scholar. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis is a scholar of English literature, a medievalist to a certain degree. Also, he had you know, written uh, prefaces to other, other books, but it would really, I've concentrated on those books that are mainly prominent, within evangelical circles, like reading Chronicles of Narnia out loud a couple of right. times through to my kids and these right. type of pieces. Right. But it, I'm really interested that in 1947, it, you, you you said that you highlighted this a little bit, the prominence of Time Magazine. And for Time Magazine, and, and you have a whole chapter, and maybe we could just talk about that chapter and come back to the Catholic chapter, um, about C.S. Lewis's reception in the mainstream media. Right. This is fascinating to me. Uh, we don't have, I don't know if we have something that compares to what Time Magazine was um, and that they would recognize a Christian author. I mean, they also had E. Stanley Jones on the cover at, at some point. Right. But t- tell us a little bit about C.S. Lewis in the mainstream media and help us understand why this was such a significant event that he was on the cover of Time. Well, it is a, an interesting matter that in, into, I would say, maybe even the 1960s, um, the kind of world in which we live now, where it's unusual for a straightforward, we would say, orthodox Christian voice to receive widespread attention. It's not, it's not unknown in our day. I think, uh, thinking of Tim, Tim Keller, for example, recently sure. passed away, had that, that kind of uh, presence. Uh, but it, but, but it, it was more common then, and part of the, the, the research goal of, of this project was to say, well, what, what was American culture like? 
it certainly was not a, a, a Christian culture in any thorough or systematic way, but there, there was also a, uh, an, a, a sense that the virtues of what had been customary in Western Christian society was good, were good, and that they were under threat. Really, really interesting aspect of this research was that most much of what I was reading were, were reviews or articles about CSO was published during World War II. Mm -hmm. And I was really, I've been really helped by a book by Alan Jacob called Year of Our Lord 1942 or 1943, in which he, he looked at uh, several people, including Lewis, Christian people who, who, who were in a sense saying, in effect saying, the West is engaged in this war against Hitler, supposedly to defend Western Christian values. But what are those Western Christian values? And in, in different ways, uh, 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 Simone Weil and, and C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot were trying to uh, make a fresh statement about the importance of Christianity, not in any direct and immediate political way, but responding to the question, what Christian resources are there for people as individuals, but also for the West. Remarkable thing about uh, the Lewis works, and I, 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 I maybe turned every page. I don't think I read thoroughly every every word that was published in those years, the 17 works. But there, there is either no or almost no commentary on the Second World War. Now, Screwtape mm. Letters has some references but but they're not about the war you you don't know interesting from these published works what lewis felt about the british government you don't know what he felt about the american uh, uh franklin roosevelt and the, the new deal but but he's writing at a time when people are looking for ultimate answers to ultimate questions mm. uh, the works themselves are are uh, creative some of them are brilliant uh they were recognized that way but it was also a time when, when the American public knew that first order questions mm -hmm. yes. were requiring first order answers. And at least some of what the attention drawn to C.S. Lewis tells us is that that was a very deep, deeply ingrained American concern, need in those desperate days of, of Late de late depression and then the war and the immediate after the war when of course you we move immediately from fighting Hitler and 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 uh, the Japanese to to the Cold War. So these are crisis times and uh, some of the reviews actually referred more to the crises of the times than, than did Lewis himself. But it was obvious that he was providing answers for questions that at least many serious people were, were raising about, well, how do we really want to talk about the, the existing values, the eternal values of what had come down in, in the Christian tradition? This is one of the helpful pieces that he brings, and this might be a, a segue to talk about why Catholic audiences would receive right. him. Because the and you highlight this, it's so helpful. I think people will pick up on it, and maybe one reason some evangelicals or in Protestants in general can connect to Lewis is that he might be an introduction to some of the natural theology right. pieces that come through with his, I mean, mere Christianity, 
is in, initiates this idea it is about built on the idea of the moral law and then goes out from there but that's not and you highlight this this isn't necessarily something that in lewis's time protestants or evangelicals were emphasizing but this gives him the ability to speak to all these places yes uh, in, in what uh, being at wheaton college and knowing a little bit about lewis and and the, the as you've you've indicated the kind of gross evangelical enthusiasm for lewis yeah. i i had known that that enthusiasm was a little late in starting, but then having uh, Maggie's research on, on these different uh, uh, reviews and articles about Lewis, it became very clear that of the major constituencies in American public life with respect to C.S. Lewis, the evangelicals, post-fundamentalists are the last ones to get <laughs> So th th this study goes up through 1947, and there is one group of Protestants who, who really are engaging with C.S. Lewis, which I'll get to the answer to your question. But in general, uh, magazines like uh, Moody Monthly, the denominational periodicals of evangelical groups either don't touch Lewis at all, or if they do, they say, like the, the, the National Association of Evangelical Magazine had a couple of short reviews, really interesting writer, really, really good to see Christian themes coming out of Oxford University. But... And then there would be a list of, uh, he, he's, he's kind of weak on the inerrancy of the Bible. He, what he says about the atonements really he kind of makes us nervous. So there was, for much of the evangelical and post-fundamentalist world, almost no interest. And the interest that was there, with this one exception that I'll get to, uh, was nervous. Unlike, as you indicated, mainstream American media and the Catholic world. Catholic, uh, the, the most enthusiastic, early, and intelligent, thorough understanding of C.S. Lewis in America comes from Catholics. Yes. Some of that has to do with the training of Catholic review reviewers in literature. A lot of it has to do with exactly what you mentioned. Lewis begins his radio broadcast talks and these, these would be eventually amalgamated into mere Christianity. Sure. By saying, isn't it, isn't it the case that everyone has instinctive moral judgments, good and evil, about the phenomena of, of life? And Lewis develops that theme and then tries to show that that instinctive belief in a right and wrong is a good foundation to move on to recommend then the specifics of the Christian faith. Well, Catholic reviewers recognized immediately that this was not exactly formal scholastic Catholic theology, but it had a lot to do with the Catholic appreciation of natural law yes. as a, uh, not a necessarily a foundation, but a beginning point for a fuller understanding of Christian faith. The one Protestant, the one evangelical group that paid attention to Lewis were conservative Presbyterians associated with Westminster Theological Seminary and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. They are the one group of evangelicals who actually write fairly extensive reviews in the 1940s about Lewis's work. And they're quite interesting. Usually the, the, they go something like this. It, what a wonderful thing to see a forthright Christian voice at Oxford University. And, and then the very specific works 
brilliantly creative or thoroughly helpful for Christian life. And this will go on for a page or two. And but right. And then and then the particular apologetical stance of the Presbyterians come into play because they're right. at their at their at the time and, and to some extent to the present time. And yeah. I, I'm a Presbyterian and sympathetic to this way of reasoning. What was that that um a, a, a true understanding of Christian faith requires a presupposition of belief in the truthfulness of Scripture as given by God. What, what comes by nature might have some kind of subsidiary value, but is not a real good foundation for the exposition of Christian faith or a Christian life. So they, they were objecting to the very thing that some of the Catholic reviewers single out as a really interesting contribution from this non-Catholic C.S. C.S. Lewis. So that, well, that's also what makes him popular in the mainstream media. Yes, right, it makes right. his and, 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 and we think about Westminster Seminary and its influence. Um, like, and you highlight a few of his reviews. Uh, uh, Cornelius Van Til. Right. That okay. So everything that he has is built upon. A, a different view, right? That there's not going to, right. there are, forgive me, like for those in the tradition, I, I always want to be cautious not to seem um, too narrow in my de um, right. description of Calvinism, like in and out, that sort of thing. But if there's people who are not going to respond to the light, well, then how can you say that the moral law is available to every? So this like, kind of butts up against kind of some of those key doctrines of you know, Calvinism. Right. Well, at least at least the way that they were being uh, uh, extrapolated at the time. But but again, the, the really fun thing about what appeared in those, those reviews were at least some of the the younger people uh, uh, who actually I had a little bit of contact with when they when they were elderly, really really wonderful people. Just wow. they couldn't hide their enthusiasm <laughs> for what a, what a terrific uh, gift C.S. Lewis was to the world. And yet, then they yeah. had paused and, and tried to position, uh, and, and, and in some sense, that there is a parallel to the Catholic writing because although um, there's, I think there's more, or at least more extensive, uh, Catholic reviewing of Lewis than than and Protest mainline Protestants of the general, there there was a Catholic undertow of of resistance, and and it had to do yeah. not so, not so much with. Catholic reviewers being excited about C.S. Lewis, but with the, with the idea that a few, not very many, maybe three or four that we can find, Catholic officials associated with the uh, uh, Catholic University of America and, and uh, people who followed really serious Catholic theology in the UK, they were nervous that other Catholics were excited about a Protestant whose works had not been approved Right. by the church and, right. and there were there were a, a couple of uh, catholic reviewers one really interesting woman and Fremantle, in fact the, the the one woman of, of the, who reviewed several of lewis's works in this time she she liked lewis and she thought he was she was i think she said at one point she she he's the most refreshing public christian voice in gk chesterton but she said he doesn't really give enough attention to the church and mm -hmm. the church's contribution to understanding, which is a standard Catholic position. So it wasn't as though Catholic reviewers were uh, mindlessly excited. 
but they they really were in general very very pleased and and uh, there, there were in fact two or three two uh, Catholic authors in particular who wrote more extensively and more thoroughly about all of C.S. Lewis's works than anyone in this period. By, the, by 1947, there is, a, there is a Protestant, Chad Walsh, he's an Episcopal priest who teaches English at Beloit College, Wisconsin. He's writing really serious critiques about Lewis. But even Chad Walsh, who eventually will publish, uh, uh, published an article, I think 46 or 47, C.S. Lewis, Apostle to the Skeptics, eventually has a book with that title, a really solid book on, on Lewis, touches only briefly Lewis's criticism about Milton's Paradise Lost, Milton's uh, landmark work as a scholar about the medieval love tradition, whereas the Catholic authors, Charles Brady of, of uh, yes. Kinesis College in Buffalo and a man named Victor Hamm, who taught at Marquette University in um, Milwaukee, both wrote extensive articles about Lewis the scholar related to Lewis the popular figure. So uh, we, we were able to have permission from America Magazine where these articles by Charles, two, two articles in, in uh, May yes. and June 1944 by Charles Brady had appeared. Grateful to have America Magazine let us reprint these in, in this particular book. Well, let, but, let me jump in there because I think that, oh, that that was one of the real treasures of this book forgive me for saying this but it wasn't what you wrote <laughs> just, but this is like a really interesting thing is as you're as i'm working through this and seeing the way that people are responding to lewis and thinking about him and, and it's interesting as you've highlighted for the catholics his ecclesiology was a problem right, right. And, and and then Honestly, for the same side, as you've highlighted on the Protestant evangelical side, what was the problem? His ecclesiology is like he's too much of, um, of, of a Romanist, so to speak, or too, too, too high church. Well, this is what's fascinating me when you get to Brady. Um, okay, so I'm, uh, this is somebody I had never heard of until I read your book, um, Charles Brady. I'm going to call him, we hear the name Brady, the goat in football. Uh, this is the goat. And thinking about C.S. Lewis, because uh, I, I honestly, I was blown away by the way he synthesized traditions um, mm -hmm. in, in these articles that thankfully American Magazine let you reprint. Um, what he does is he helps Catholics see how they can trust him. And I thought it was interesting that he does that by making him into the next Chesterton. Like that's the connect and all of these illusions. And he highlights, he brings together. I've never seen anybody do it. Now I'm sure you have, but his scholarship into Milton and the like, it's just in connecting that to the Pilgrim's regress and, and Chesterton. This is a masterpiece. These are two masterpiece right. studies of Lewis. It helped me so much understand him better. So tell us about, about Brady. Was this somebody that you had known about? Is this a public intellectual I just missed? I mean, curious. Oh, um, I before Maggie found these uh, essay reviews in, in 1945, I, I did not know about Charles Brady, but then I have done some research on him and, and read a couple of his other books. He, he was a very creative English professor. Okay. Who, who, uh, um, published a book not too long after these reviews of C.S. Lewis, uh, in, uh, just excerpting Catholic authors through the centuries in order to make the point that Catholics too could be creative in a literary sense. Catholics too could engage the great intellectual traditions of the West 
and he he wanted to convey the impression that that uh, the Catholic faith could nurture literary creativity as well as doctrinal and ecclesiastical uh, appropriateness. He himself wrote a, a, a couple of fantasies. I think one one of them was uh, from the point of view of one of the the mice who might have been there when the uh, Christmas hymn Silent Night was was written. And he did, uh, he did a couple of other uh, 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 whimsical books like that, while uh, in Buffalo being a constant reviewer for uh, one of the Buffalo papers. Uh, okay. uh, Brady lived a long life. He was the chairman of the, uh, of the Canisius English Department for quite a few years. He retired, I, I think, somewhere around maybe 1960. But then for another 20 years, wrote reviews. He, he ended up, he actually reviewed quite a few of Lewis's major works in the 1950s, also works by J.R. Tolkien. He at one time uh, proposed a, a complete book on the Oxford Christians, as he, as he called them. And I'm not quite sure why it didn't get published. He, he did quite a bit of work on it. But he, he was um, a, a Catholic literary historian mm. and a Catholic writer of fanciful literature and someone who in his his reviews just just doesn't care at all about what other catholics are nervous which is really in fact i think it, it's it's in one of his things he said the only disappointing thing about the reception of lewis by catholics is a few catholics are not on board right, so he, right. And he's actually that kind of enthusiasm is what actually makes a couple of the serious conservative catholics nervous that there's too much catholic enthusiasm but Oh, so Brady actually sent these two articles to C.S. Lewis and said, I really appreciated your writing. And Lewis wrote back and said, you're the first person, and I think he used the phrase, to work up the entire body of, of what I had written. So he, Lewis appreciated that uh, Brady, because of Brady's own background in understanding English literature, but then also the classical tradition, medieval literature, Brady understood that he was doing, that what Lewis was doing, trying to bring sophisticated scholarship to the service of popular media. And that, I think, is, is uh, uh, one of the things that he grasped, but a, a few of the others grasped, a few of the other uh, reviewers, W.H. Auden, for example. I want to talk about yeah. too. that, too. That what we had with Lewis was a, an effective Christian spokesperson in part because he was created. I mean, there was just no, no doubt about that, and a, and a great writer, but also because he had this tremendous foundation of learning uh, from the great uh, tradition of Western uh, uh, learning that, that, that went back to the early church and extended right, right up right to the present. Well, if we think about him, his interest in Milton, and you had the Paradise right. Lost, there's not a, and then you jump to, here's a guy who writes a book about demons. Okay, like, like, let's just see this connection here. And but it's it's much much deeper than that. Um, even just thinking about the various levels of hell. I mean, again, I had never connected some of these dots dots right. until I read um, Brady's articles that you shared. Well, the Victor Ham essay review of Paralandras is really interesting. This Marquette professor said, "Well, we could look on Paralanda para, para as, and I'm, I'm not going to get the phrase exactly right. We said paradise, not." lost and, and uh, his appreciation of Paralandra 
was deeply rooted in this particular instance in what he knew as a Milton scholar and, and, and his appreciation for the book that, Milton, that, that Lewis had published on Milton, The Preface to Paradise Lost, that had been available for academics, but really, really was an actually and was reviewed in one or two um, um, newspapers and popular, but was not really paid attention to. But Victor Ham could see that Paralandra benefited from what Lewis had studied in depth about Paradise Lost. Right. That's fascinating. I'm interested uh, too. I'm going to highlight just two um, two of the more well known voices that were commenting in this period that you that you studied on C.S. Lewis. I want to get to them, but the first is um, W. H. Auden. And you tell an interesting story about Auden and his pastor. I didn't right. know that. So tell us about oh, that. This is so Auden uh, reviewed uh, the Great Divorce, Lewis's fantasy about an omnibus coming to heaven and people getting off and maybe not wanting to stay. He, and he liked it. He did have a, just a couple of minor criticisms, but he said, this, this is really good stuff. And then he also uh, said that uh, Americans should pay attention to Charles Williams, uh, Lewis's friend and, and influence. And then a little bit later, there's an article in the Christian Century. And the Christian Century was the one mainline Protestant publication, not, not, unfavorable to Lewis, but kind of tepid. The yeah. other uh, the other mainline things I found were shared the general enthusiasm for Lewis. But this article from the Christian Century was done by an Episcopal, Episcopal minister, priest from uh, Philadelphia who, area, who went to interview Lewis, and he wrote an article that was really kind of dismissive. Lewis didn't read Soren Kierkegaard. He didn't know what existentialism was. He was uh, kind of shabby and kind of boisterous, and, and this, uh, this author just kind of poo-pooed Lewis. But he said uh, Lewis became uh, alive and alert when the pastor said that he was W.H. Auden's priest. And Lewis said, well, isn't that interesting? Because Lewis had heard that Auden had uh, taken a more serious interest in traditional Christianity, which in fact is the case. Lewis, uh, I, I actually went back and looked at what Lewis had written about Auden's poetry, modern poetry. Lewis was a traditionalist. Mm -hmm. And early on, Lewis was quite dismissive of Auden's poetry. But after yeah. he heard was <laughs> <laughs> liking his work, then Lewis's comments about Auden's poetry become a little bit more measured. <laughs> so Auden, Auden who, who I think a, a, a year after he, he wrote his review of the Great Divorce, received the Pulitzer Prize for, for literature uh, and a major voice in, in uh, British and American uh, poetics, was, was one of the people who was, who was uh, high on Lewis. Actually, on Auden, a, a little bit later in, in the 50s, he writes a glowing review of uh, The Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien, which is also against people who were, who were poo-pooing that as, as not, a, not a really important work. Interesting. These these major voices were thinking about this. Right. And it's interesting if you go back and you know, part of my work on uh, William Booth is just to look at the public intellectuals of his time who were speaking about him from Cardinal Manning to J.B. Lightfoot to other kind of like well-known people. That gives us an insight into what was happening because these were contemporary with what they were saying. So, so Auden's comments are helpful to us, I think, in part because it helps us see. I mean, even you said there was already interaction between the two, 
in that period. And, and I, I did appreciate the way you didn't give a lot of attention to it, but enough to see that the Christian century um, did kind of, I don't know, like their little side comments right, were right. looking down at, right. um, at C.S. Okay. Oh, the other one I wanted to highlight uh, back on the Catholic side, Thomas Merton. And right. it's a New York Times review. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and what we can learn from the Catholic perspective on Lewis via Merton. Right, right. Well, Merton actually had one of the early reviews of Lewis before the screw tape letters and before he was uh, re really famous. The review appeared between the time when Mart Merton came back to the Catholic Church and just a, a few months, maybe a year or so before he entered the Gethsemane monastery in yeah. Kentucky where he lived, lived for the rest of his life. He, he reviewed uh, the work called the, the Personal Heresy, which was a uh, uh, an argument that Lewis and another scholar on, on, on how you should approach a, a literary work. And Lewis's argument was, well, the author is maybe sort of important, but the really important thing is the work itself. And uh, Merton reviewed this positively, and I think he he got some of the for the New York Times. He got some of the theological sense uh, ab about understanding what Lewis was trying to say about how important it is that truth comes to us from the outside, and and mm -hmm. whatever we do, and however we, however humans construct things, is important. But what's really important is the the objectivity of, of the work. So it's not an extensive review. It's, it's, it's uh, well, it, well, as you put it differently, it's extensive for the New York Times. It's not like the Brady uh, or the sure. Chad Walsh re reviews, but it's indicative that, that uh, Lewis's thinking about broader conceptual matters was attracting readers who could see the Christian import in, in what mm -hmm. uh, was being said. So yes, that was, that was quite a, it actually just kind of blew me away to see Thomas Merton before he became famous <laughs> being asked to review this work in the for the New York Times. Yeah, it's so it's very helpful to think about the the way that Lewis connected many streams of thought. And of course, right. the one of the things that um from his scholarly work to his Christian work to it, like you indicated, people just like him. People just, when they read his, they, he has a way of writing that connects people that they, they want to generally keep reading. But I, I'm curious, like, there, what do you, what are some of the kind of big trends that made it so that Catholics, broad kind of just um, uh, American intellectuals, and then eventually, you know, Protestants and then evangelicals uh, all look to Lewis. What are some of those things? And we've maybe talked about a few of them, but are there any any other things that we haven't talked about that make him such a, an integrated voice or like a person for us to look at from this period? It certainly it seemed to me when I was reading these different reviews and especially the, the Catholic reviewers emphasize it, but some of the others did too. They didn't call it mere Christianity then. Mm -hmm. but they did in different ways talk about Lewis's intentional focus on the main central teachings of the Christian faith and leaving aside the teachings and the practices that were controversial. So uh, I, I think that what um, the reviewing public was recognizing is something that uh, I mean, a historian and other questions certainly, certainly is under, underscored that when 
the intra-Christian disputes become public, they're really not interested to the broader public. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're a Wesleyan or a Calvinist, you want to have good discussions amongst them. But the broader public's not going to be too much interested in, in, in whether um, infants should be baptized or people should sure. be baptized upon their profession of faith. But they might be interested, and in this particular time, in response to Lewis, they were interested in, is there a moral order in the universe? Yes. How does that moral order connect to the Christian teaching about the unique Son of God, about mm -hmm. the incarnation, about the resurrection of Christ, about the, the reconciliation brought between humans and God <laughs> by Christ? So those teachings, which would which eventually be called mere Christianity, were what a lot of the reviewers responded to in Lewis. It was refreshing to have a very clear Christian voice mm -hmm. that was not a denominational Christian voice. And and if uh, you know if there's a if there's a lesson from this kind of history for for today, it seems to me that would be one of them. But uh, yeah, to, to hearing in the uh, in the modern world, you, you probably don't want to talk too much about what aid to Ukraine or or, mm. or aid to aid to the Palestinians, as important as those things are, and as, as important as they should be for Christian people. But a Christian message in, in public life is going to be focused on the main center of, of Christian Orthodox teaching. Which takes us back in part to where we started the conversation to Francis Asbury. Yeah. yeah. You know, to what you said about what your insights are about Methodism in that it, it wasn't that there weren't other Bible-believing um, soteriologically focused groups, but at the same time, uh, it was this non-political message that connected with people, particularly on the frontiers of America. Um, yes, yeah. and, and, and yes, I mean, I think it just you can't compare the the kind of technical learning of an Asbury and a Luther, but you you can compare. I've actually, as part of the early early work on the uh, early Methodist, I. I to try to track what what are the texts that people like Asbury were, were printing. There's been some really good scholarship on on not just Asbury but other ministers, and you know there's a range of texts, but they they tend to focus in on you know the the promises of of Christ that Christians see in Isaiah, in the Gospels, in, in the proclamation of of the urgency of repentance and, and faith in, in the Pauline epistles, and they're not about the, the the kind of texts that have led on to intra-Christian uh, debate. And, and clearly Lewis, uh, now, uh, he, he, when he, he's challenged during this period, and he said, well, these radio broadcasts, I, I have I've passed them by Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, and I've tried to adjust things if they if they object. But he's, he's deliberate in, in trying to see, uh, present to the public a basic universal Christian message. Yeah. And that, that was very important. So what you're su suggesting is that in this period, 1935 to 1947, which was pre-mere Christianity, it was nevertheless his mere Christianity right, right. that connected him to... I, I, th I think so, yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, and then, of course, there, there are individual things, and, and it, it, it took uh, a real... A creative intellect to, to come up with the idea behind the screw tape letters, um, the the uh, the prose in the broadcast talks that would eventually be 
pulled together as mere Christianity is, is scintillating prose. And I, I'm struck by what Lewis himself said uh, about the preparation of his broadcast talks that led to these. He said they, they came out of his experience being enlisted by chaplains of the British military talking to troops, RAF troops, other, other troops. They would enlist lay people to come and give brief Christian messages. And Lewis reports his first ones were terrible. Nobody yeah. paid any attention because he, I think he felt he had the responsibility to present a message that his fellow Oxford dons would appreciate. And that was just the wrong idea. You, you wanted a message that people had no theological training and in, in many ways, no interest in formal Christian matters to attract them. And so th that, in that process, before he gave the broadcast talks, Lewis had already been un undergoing a, a, a transition between Christian thinking and writing aimed at people like himself, Mm -hmm. thinking and writing aimed at the public as a whole so that that and that part was uh point was 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 uh, singled out by some of the reviewers as well you had oftentimes material of considerable depth and complexity but presented with it with just crystalline prose yes that was not it was not a mistake it was a deliberate choice for lewis to, to work in that way is uh one of my favorite short essays comes in God in the Dock, uh, which is you know, just a title. I don't even know if he came up with that title, but it was a um, uh, interview that he has with that just dictated uh, a conversation he had with businessmen. It was like as, as if he was going in our time to a rotary club and taking questions. Right. And I love just to see the way he interacted in, in that environment. He was able to take his learning, this, this foundation to them. I'm curious, Mark, with your um, with the study you've done, and it's mainly been the. It's obviously thinking about what others thought of Lewis. But if you had, if I, if if you only had a uh, five hours and you had to read one Lewis book, which one would you? Which one would you read? What would you do? What's your kind of a go-to Lewis text? Well, I did as you said. You did. We we my wife and I read the Narnia tales to our kids, so they had three children and probably went through the Narnia tale six or seven times. And I, I found them, uh, you know, uh, really, really attractive. But, but as I mentioned, um, I, 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 I really have enjoyed many, many times dipping into rather than just reading straight through the, the Oxford history of English. Okay. For the 16th century, because uh, the judgments on individual authors are just uh, carefully made. And, and many of the authors I, I knew nothing about, but I had actually done a little work and, and benefited from student work on a, a really serious exchange between Thomas More and William Tyndale in the early days of the English Reformation. And Lewis has just brilliant uh, insights. He actually appreciates both authors, although they hated each other, and they wrote thousands of pages against each other. But then also, uh, he does what historians just almost never do, is he'll, he'll give his opinions about how some things in the 16th century re relate to, to the present. And I wouldn't say that the, the, this work is, is uh, Christian edification as such. Yes. It's such a marvelous combination of historical diligence, 
historical insight and historical clarity of a kind that uh, traditional historians just just don't don't do. So I guess maybe that betrays my interest as a professional historian and how somebody not really a professional historian <laughs> did what I tried to do so so very well. Interesting. Well, my the title of my podcast is More to the Story, and part of it is I like to just go deeper to get the story behind what people are thinking about. Um, it, you know, personally, I also have a theological slant to it, thinking about the emphasis on sanctification. There's more than just getting our sins forgiven. But I love to ask the question, is there more to the story of Mark Knoll? Is there something that you've done hundreds of interviews, I'm sure. Um, is there something you don't get to talk about? Do you like to, uh, is there a certain sport you like? Or is there some, a hobby that you have that you don't talk about? So what's more to the story of Mark Knoll? Well, from a very early age, I, I thought maybe I would be a writer. I'd write novels and poems and, and actually turned out, I think I am a writer, but it's much more mundane and much more uh, 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 kind of ordinary historical work. But for, for uh, a long, long time, I have been intrigued by the fact that uh, shortly after John Wesley returned from England to Britain, yeah. 1738, because of his positive contact with Moravians in Georgia and in London, he took a trip to the center of the Moravian work in Germany at Herrenhut, in which is now kind of Eastern Germany. On the way in his trip in 1738, the summer of 1738, he passed twice through the city of Leipzig, where at the time, the chief musician of the city was J.S. Bach. Now, I've read everything I could find on Wesley and his trip and everything I could find on Bach in the summer of 1738, and there is absolutely no <laughs> evidence that they, they knew of each other or, or saw each other. But I was privileged a few years ago when, when uh, the Bach Society met at Notre Dame to actually write up a, a kind of what if? I mean, there's these two key Christian people, so very different. Yeah, yeah. Also with a lot in common. And uh, it, was, it was fun to do that and actually find out that some of the Charles Wesley's sons. Yes. Who introduced J.S. Bach to, uh, to England. Oh, and I didn't like that. No, interesting. So I, I thought, well, could I do a, a fantasy if they'd met? I, I, oh, interesting. And uh, this may never happen, but you ask about more of the story. So this is probably part of the story that will never happen. But it, it, oh, it I is, hope it does. It it, uh, it is a a thought. What if these two very different people had met? Yeah. And it's, it's possible to know because of the, the the really detailed box scholarship which cantatas would have been uh, performed in the churches when. Uh, Wesley was near Leipzig. And there's a, just a lot of other information you can find about the two of them at that time. But whether or not uh, whether or not a, an old working historian can put things <laughs> together is, 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 a, is a real good question. Oh, I love the idea. I was a, a music major in undergrad and I a composer and um my music, mu the musicologist that I work with is a man named Dr. Ronald Holtz, and he made sure that we 
just understood certain things about Bach as a theol as a he right. he he contrasted Handel and Bach with this right. he that Handel was an Old Testament dramatist, but uh but Bach was a New Testament theologian in right. the way that he approached things. And then he also made sure like we understood things that like uh B, the B minor mass was almost like a high point in Western civilization. <laughs> like it's bringing together all of these various disciplines. And, and to think about, I've never even had the thought that they were around together at the same time, in the world at the same time. Uh, oh, please do it. That would be fun. <laughs> well, it might, it might take a set of abilities that, that I don't have, but but yes, uh, I, I've certainly benefited over the years from, from all sorts of wonderful Wesley Scott. The Henrik Rack biography, I think is one of the truly great books ever written. Yeah, Yaroslav Pelikan, Bach the Theologian, is a terrific book as well. Just making the, the points that you made, and yeah, just to think that they're they're in the world together at the same time, at, uh, and actually is probably in the same place within you know a few yards of each other. Man, I, oh, thank you. That's such a my my mind spinning thinking about those connections. And um, there's been some scholarship done on um, uh, Samuel Wesley in right. as a composer and. Yeah. I, I think I think there's a lot of interesting ties between these things. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's an honor for me to talk with you, somebody who has been a key voice within not just evangelicalism, but in the discipline of history. And thank you for this book. Um, I, I hope it will help people understand American culture better, but also this key voice who can be an example to us for how we can move forward. So we really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you. The book was fun to write and it was a fun conversation today as well. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.